0: Hey, folks, I am having my wedding this Saturday, so we're going to be running a series of greatest hits shows for the next few weeks. Please consider supporting China Talk at Chinatalk.substack.com or Patreon.com Chinatalk. You'll get an ad-free feed and my eternal gratitude. All the best. Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider, here today with guest host Athena Tao, a consumer industry investor based in Beijing. So, Mr. Softy and Suzhou? Yes, that was a thing. And boy, what a thing it was. Turner Sparks, rising from humble beginnings as just another English teacher making his way in China, achieved fame and fortune on the back of a catchy jingle and some tasty mobile mango-flavored soft serve. Yet his dreams of a China-wide ice cream domination came crashing down amid a hail of backstabbing regulators, slashed tires, and stolen cones. Today on China Econ Talk, the rise and fall of a mobile ice cream empire. Turner, thanks so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me on the show. I love that. What That's a great, quite an opening. What a great introduction. That's probably the best ever.
0: So before we get to this epic tale, I'm curious, what was your favorite flavor you guys produced in these Mister Softie trucks?
1: Okay, so this flavor, it started out as my least favorite. And but then I just trusted everyone that people liked it. And then eventually it was like coffee. Like I grew to like it. So we had this like ice cream that tasted like a rice cake when you ate it. And then on top of it, we put red beans and whipped cream. And Ooh. it was fantastic. But the sound of it sounds awful to a lot of people. Maybe not all, some people, but but everyone in our office loved it. And the first time I tried it, it was like I, it tasted like I was eating a chalkboard. But then after a while, was like, it really became my favorite. It's fantastic.
0: Athena, what did we have the other day? It was like a it was like a milk it was like a tea flavored milkshake with whipped cream
2: on top. You had a right liqueur ice cream, I believe. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. So th- there's there's a lot of a lot of exciting stuff going on in the ice cream and ice cream adjacent uh verticals here in China. Sure. So yeah, it's exciting stuff. The only other uh, ice cream anecdote I have before jumping into this uh, this story was watching a movie the other day. It was this kind of like Harry Potter type tale of like a, a Chinese movie of like an orphan getting adopted, and the stepmom was really mean. And there was this scene where. They were like some guest was coming over to check on the orphan kid, and the evil stepmom gave both kids little uh, cups of Haagen But as soon as the person left, the mom was like, "There is no world in which I'm going to spend money to let you eat Haagen That is some expensive stuff, and only my like super mean son, not this lame orphan who has no business in my life, has any right to eat the, the Haagen stuff." So a lot of uh, a lot of interesting class consciousness going on when it comes to uh, ice cream products and Chinese cinematic. History. Well, I. Agree with her on
1: just to stop you. I agree with her in one sense. does is too expensive. They should have used Mr. Softy.
0: Seriously, seriously, <laughs> it's unbelievable how 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 incredibly uh, overpriced it is. The, I think there's like a. I'll take the mean mom side for a minute.
2: <laughs> so how much was Mr. Softy in Sujo?
1: Mr. Softy was cones like a vanilla cone was six RMB. And then our most expensive product was a banana split or banana boat banana split, which was twenty five RMB. And then all of our shakes and sundays and like dipped cones and our blasts, which were like the blizzards. Everything or uh, everything was right in like the eight to ten, eight to like fifteen range for the most part.
0: So Turner, uh, when did this stroke of brilliance of bringing Mister Softy to to China strike you?
1: Uh, well, thank you. It, <laughs> it struck in, I think it was two thousand five. I was there. I'd moved there in two. I'd moved to China in two thousand four, and then I was teaching English, as you said. And then I had, let's see, there was a. Like they used, I don't know if they still do, uh, but they would have on all the like the Bushinjays in the cities, all the walking streets downtown, they would have these um, McDonald's had these like windows. They would have the McDonald's, but then they would have a window next to it where they sold the ice cream. And they would have, and then Kentucky Fried Chicken, I mean, KFC had those. And basically, all of those in Suzhou, at least, they had these huge long lines at all times, all times of the year, all times of the day, people just waiting for the window to get the ice cream. And so there's two things that struck me about that. One is that there was 25 people at all times waiting to get ice cream. Uh, and then the second was that ice cream was so popular that they had to take it outside of the actual McDonald's restaurant because they, they didn't want people clogging the restaurant just to buy ice cream. And then the third was sure. that that was like the highest quality of ice cream available outside of haagen which you mentioned, which was super expensive. It was 35, 40 RMB for an uh, ice cream cone. And while McDonald's was 2 and I just thought there had to be some kind of a middle ground, and that Mister Softy would be something. If people were this excited about just getting a McDonald's soft serve cone, Mister Softy had a way bigger menu. We had way more to offer. Plus, it was on a truck that we could drive through the city,
0: which would which would be really cool. So, what was the what was the next step once you uh, had the stroke of genius? Um, well, my the reason why I kind of
1: connected it with the brand Mister Softy specifically was my best friend from college. Uh, There's a guy named Alex Conway, and his family started Mr. Softy in the 1950s in uh, Haddonfield, New Jersey, outside of Philadelphia. And it's still uh-huh. a family owned business today. Like his dad still owns it. I saw his dad a couple weeks ago, and it's within the family still. And they have seven now, I think, at this point, 650, 700 trucks up and down the East Coast that they franchise. So I knew. Once I had the idea, I just talked to Alex about it, but really it was coincidence in the sense that I had this idea, but a lot of times you have ideas and you don't really do anything with them. You're just like, oh, that would be cool. Someone should do this is like the thing that people always say, right? There's no Thai restaurant in this neighborhood. Someone should open a Thai restaurant, but you never think it's you. And then Alex contacted me right about that time through email saying like he was a business major in college and so he had like the mind and he was contact me through email. And he's like, Hey, we should do some kind of business in China. Like I'm reading that China is going to be the next big thing. This is in like 2004, <laughs> 2005. And I was like, I just saw all these people reading ice cream at McDonald's. Like, why don't we try a Mr. Softy truck? And, and he was like, all right, yeah, let's talk to my dad. And, um, <laughs> to us, it was as simple as that. Just let's talk to his
0: dad and his dad will give us a business. And,
1: uh, that's not, that's not the way it
0: happens. <laughs> So what were the 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 first steps? Presumably you needed some permits, some regulations. So how did you how did you go about acquiring the 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 government approvals you needed to to get going?
1: Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, so it was so much more complicated than we thought. We had to get the local government on board. We also had to get Jim Conway, Alex's dad, he had to agree. And then we had to build the supply chain, all that kind of stuff. So we kind of just tried to do it all at once while telling everybody like I was in meetings with the Suzhou government telling them that we ran Mr. Softy. Jim Conway hadn't even yet agreed to license us, Mr. Softy. And then I was in meetings with Jim Conway. He was like, well, I'm not going to do this if it's not going to work. And we're like, oh, no, it'll work. We'll be fine with the Sujo government. I, so in the meetings with the Suzhou government specifically, yeah, we had to get a hygiene license. We had to get a, let's see, all the fire stuff. So what they decided, because there had never been a mobile vending unit like what we were looking to do. With uh, ice cream trucks, any kind of food trucks had never happened in Suzhou, so they didn't really know how to regulate it, and we didn't know how they should regulate it either. And so, it was a lot of meetings of just us, first of all, explaining to them what we did, and then explaining why. I remember their question was like, "Why? Like, why do you need a truck to sell ice cream? Like, why not a store? You could just do it in a store." (laughs) And which is a very logical question. Like, if you've never seen an ice cream truck before. You would be like, I don't. Why is that necessary? Like, you know, there's no like falafel. Like, well, like, we need to build a castle here. Well, why do you need a castle? Well, like, so we can sell falafels. Obviously, you know, <laughs> like, it doesn't make sense if you have no history of it. So sure. we got all these. Well,
2: but that's interesting, Turner, because there are you know breakfast trucks all around, and and they're probably. All illegal. Well, not to offend anyone who, who own a uh, breakfast truck anywhere, but <laughs>
0: uh, you know, a, a, a big overlap again with our with our uh, China Econ Talk audience, the, <laughs> the um, breakfast uh, the, truck guys, the Jen the the Gen Bing lady. Absolutely,
2: yeah. Jordan, you're such a big hit. Um, yeah, but it's surprising because I'm sure the government's aware of their existence at least. Well,
1: so it's funny what. I never, I've never seen a truck um, in Suzhou. It's like a person. Speaking of Jim, being specifically, it'll be like a person a, like a, with a with little the tricycles. They didn't have, were they tricycles? Maybe I guess, yeah. Uh, but those were downtown. So a good uh, something to note here is that this was in the Suzhou Industrial Park, which was at that time it was pretty new. It was the Singapore China Cooperation Development right outside of Suzhou, where they were going to build this brand new city with all the regulations and all of the cleanliness and everything of, of Singapore, but in China and then Singapore is going to help develop it. And while they had all that stuff downtown, none of it was on a truck. It would be, yeah, maybe on a, maybe on a um, tricycle or just like on a stand that like with wheels that I remember people would just push the wheels. Like the one in my neighborhood, it was a lady with like a flat um, cooking. What do you even call that? Where the Jim Bing's made on like the, the, Stove top or something, and that's not the right word. The trash can tops. The it was a trash can, yeah, it was a trash can with like a hot plate on top, and with wheels on the bottom. So maybe they had maybe in Beijing they had cooler looking ones, but at that time in Suzhou there was no real truck. So what they decided was first of all they're like, why do you need this? This is just like they they also were blown away that this sounded like the most dangerous business on earth. Like you're gonna sell ice cream to kids out of a moving like like. (laughs) it was like out of a tank to them you know like out of this giant truck that's driving around and then kids are going to be chasing after you through the streets of sujo like no thank you yeah um and so then we showed videos of all the trucks in the united states and how like
0: running over innocent yeah just blasting
1: through neighborhoods yeah so anyway they finally decided that the way to regulate us like was that we had to have a store because to be able to tax us, you had to have a location, and you had to have an office. As a foreign-owned invest, foreign owned company, we were a wholly foreign-owned enterprise. And I don't know if this is the same way with Chinese businesses. You guys would probably know better than I would if you've worked with them. But you had to have an accountant in your office, like nuts and bolts of it. You had to have an accountant, you had to have an HR person, and you had to have a fixed location. Like Every business, every foreign-owned company in China, or in Suzhou at least, had to have that. So they decided we needed to have an office and we needed to have a store. And then these trucks could operate as delivery units from the store, even though we all knew what we were doing, but that was the way to like, to get us to fit into the law. Sure. Once they decided that it was a cool idea and they wanted to do it, then they was just figuring out how to make it fit legally. Um, and they worked with us really hard and like very creatively to try to figure out how to do it. And, and that became the way to do it, that we needed to have a store and but there was also stuff like then we built a store and then they decided oh we have to have two stores so then all of a sudden like we have these two ice cream stores and our idea was to do trucks but out of necessity
0: we had to have these stores uh, so that was kind of how it all came together on that end. So so let's let's now come to the uh, the supply chain process. I'm I uh, I imagine this is this was not a straightforward thing particularly back in uh, the the mid 2000s setting up a you know all you need to to make an. Uh, and serve ice cream. So what was that process like? So
1: with that, we got pretty lucky because I think probably a year earlier, it would have been next to impossible. But we came along at the perfect time. There was this expo called Hotel X, E-X, in Shanghai, um, which could still go on. And every year, someone had told us, tipped us off to go to that. And we went to it, and it was like, I think like 80% or more of our supply chain came from that one expo. There was Mm. uh, it was called hotels, but it was really for any retail food stuff in China and almost like in the fast food style. And so at that expo, we met our ice cream cone supplier. Like I remember there was this like guy from Guangzhou named Gary Ho who became like a legend, but he was, he was almost like a carnival barker. He was there and he had these like giant bands of uh, ice cream cone, um, Uh, machines like how to make them and he was in this like cantonese slash english slash poudon he was like yelling at everybody trying to get them to try his ice cream cones he was making these really cool the waffle cones and at that time that really struck me because at that before that everyone mcdonald's kfc every which i think they still do but everybody was selling the uh, the wafer cones and so we met him there we met our um all of our toppings there was a company that just sold toppings that was selling there. 2005, 2006 was this time when everybody was trying to get in to China. I guess probably, I don't know if it probably still is, but it was the early on in the days of everyone trying to get in. So all these companies were, had just set up these operations in China. And this was like one of the first places to go to meet people you could supply to. So our cups, our spoons, our lids, our bowls, our plates, everything was there. And then the luckiest we got was we, outside, independent of that that expo, we met this American company that was starting to sell soft serve um, wholesale in China. And they had set up, I think, six months before we opened, that we started working on our project, they established their headquarters in Hunan. And these were all guys from Kansas who were taking the milk from from their dairies in the U.S. and then putting it into powder form and then taking it to China remixing it with all of the stuff you needed and then selling it in liquid form to people like us.
2: Yeah, let me just give some context here. So basically in China, franchising is a huge thing. Basically every industry you can think of that's to consumers, you can find lots of franchisers and basically one of their biggest needs every year is to recruit franchisees. So um, for instance, In the restaurant business or, let's say, the food retail business, there are two expos every year, once in the spring and once in the fall, that they'd have nationwide, basically, franchisee recruitment during these expos. So the expos serve two purposes. One, to display the new products, the new candies, the new snacks, and the other is to recruit franchisees. And, and franchising is such a common way to expand your businesses that managing these franchisees also became a huge, I'd say, problem in China. And, and I think that will also cause a lot of supply chain problems for businesses. And, and I think that's like kind of foreshadowing what, what Mr. Softy will run into down the road.
0: Yeah. So before we dive too deep into uh, into the downfall, let's 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 stick with the rise here. I mean, come on, we haven't we haven't hit our climax yet. So let's talk a little bit about the initial rollout. So you have to hire your accountant, your HR person, um, drivers uh, presumably. So what was the staffing up process like? It really just started like how a business would start anywhere,
1: which is you start asking friends like like Hey, I, I'm looking for someone who can do this, someone who can do this, and our office staff was me and one other person for a very long time. And that, I guess, two other people. We had an accountant and we had an HR person, exactly what we needed. And the accountant came from one of our partners, Jeffrey Tsai. There was three of us. Uh, Jeffrey was the guy who owned, the, um, he owned a cell phone manufacturing company, which I, I can't remember if I talked about earlier or not. But he was a Chinese guy and he owned this factory and this company and he had a few accountants and one of them he thought would be good to help us. And so she came over from his company and started with us. So that was pretty easy and trustworthy. She's worked with him. And then the HR person, it, it just come from off of a recommendation. We had a friend who had worked in another company and he really liked this person. So I interviewed and she came to work for us. And then the drivers we got from, um, there was a fair or not a fair, like a market, I guess you would say in Sujo all the time where People who were looking for jobs could go, and then also companies looking for people could go. And you could rent a booth for a few hundred RMB for the day, and just sit there. And a, a hundred people, usually like lower level jobs, but a hundred like people will come up and just kind of ask, like, "What are you? Can I apply for your job?" And I think we picked a couple people based out of that. Sure. Because we started with one truck. It was only one truck and one store the first year, so we didn't need too big. We needed a few people to work in the store and we needed two drivers for the truck to switch off
0: hours. Sure. So, the initial truck experience, how did the people of Sujo respond?
1: It was fantastic. Yeah, it was, it kind of exploded right away. So, I remember the first day we went to Gingy Lake, which is this kind of tourist area just in, in the middle of Sujo Industrial Park. And we'd had the permits and all that. The government gave us the permits for all these different spots around town. We couldn't sell anywhere, but we could sell at these specific spots. One of our spots was at Gingy Lake. There was this fireworks thing going off and this laser light show. We... Parked our truck there, and it like I I, for hours. I think four or five hours. It was just nonstop lines on both windows. Like we had to open both windows, which we weren't, um, we weren't expecting. And then we had to put. It couldn't just be the driver in the truck. We realized right away we needed two people in the truck. We're in America. You just have one. You have a driver in China. We needed two because the business was so there was so much business that you needed to be pumping everything out as much as you could. And then and then also on our first truck we had. an ice cream, a soft serve ice cream machine that we thought would be fine for the next trucks. And then from then on out, we had to go with a more expensive machine because it could pump out, it it could go nonstop. Like we needed to up our game on everything,
0: all of our uh, production side. So from very early on, it was clear that there was a, a real product market fit and um, expansion was definitely in the office.
1: Yeah, it was day one because it was like there was no ramp up time needed because people saw this truck. It looked really cool. They saw people eating ice cream and like, you didn't have to explain to the general public what you were doing. It was just like, whoa, that's cool. We know what ice cream is. We see that, we see that truck. And then we found out that a lot of people told us they had seen ice cream trucks in movies. Um, oh. And so that was different. Thanks, was different. Hollywood. Exactly, right? And so then there's a real difference between the, like, the 65-year-old guy in, that you're in a meeting with down at the government, like the grandpa, versus the 20-year-old college students who are actually the ones eating your ice cream on the street. You know? And sure. what they're exposed to is wildly different. And,
0: those, and so the, our actual demographic, they knew what it was. Is there one scene... That everyone referred to of uh, from from any particular movie, I think like Bad News Bears has a ice cream truck scene or something. I'm not sure there wasn't one
1: specifically. Uh, You know what? I'm trying to think because there was even as we were going. Anytime a new movie come out, I remember like the was it the Good Guys or the the other guys, which was like this Will Ferrell buddy cop movie, had a Mr. Softy truck in it. And then when that happened, all these people told us they saw it in that. And then, uh, like customers would tell you, like I just saw Mr. Softy yesterday in this movie. And then uh, in, <laughs> I don't think a lot of like our audience watched this, but my friends did. In Curb Your Enthusiasm, there was like this entire episode about the Mr. Softy truck. Um, oh, and then a lot of this is interesting. Like our expats from like Europe all knew it from this old Eddie Murphy bit. Eddie Murphy in like 1982 has this Mr. Softy like thing, and so everyone was. Surprise! but there would always be these little bumps along the way where people would find out about it or like say they knew it. Yeah. Oh, you know what? There was also, I want to say, sorry, last thing. Was it Spider-Man? That was a big one. He's wearing a Mr. Softy t-shirt. I I might be getting the superhero wrong, but like the high school version of whatever this superhero is, like early in the movie, he's wearing a Mr. Softy shirt. And whenever that happened, that movie played in China and people were flipping out because it was our logo on this spider and they were like how did you do this like how much did you pay to make this happen <laughs> and they're like nothing they just think it's cool i don't know yeah it has this kind of like cool factor on the east coast of the u.s i'm not sure where you guys are from but um in certain places new jersey and new york in it's in the culture
2: and, and that's really before social media took off in china
1: yes yeah so that would have been great but it wasn't no it was just people just showing us their phones or showing us pictures (laughs) all these people took pictures of their tv screen and then were showing them to us that's great yeah it it kind of took off and then another thing we noticed which i thought was really cool and i was really happy with was that because it happens in america in america in in the in the new york and new jersey and the east coast northeast people refer to mr softy as like a person whereas like McDonald's. They're like, "Hey, let's go to McDonald's," or like any restaurant. They're like, "Let's go to that restaurant." But Mr. Softy, they're like, "Oh, he's coming." Like I hear Mr. Softy. <laughs> he's down the street, you know. And I always really like that because it shows the connection people have to the company, and they feel like it's a part of their life. And then I noticed that pretty early, starting at Mr. Softy, people would say like, "Oh, Mr. So- I saw Mr. Softy yesterday. He was he was like on this street." And I just really enjoyed that, that overlap, that connection with the brand. And it's really kind of the way it developed in Suzhou. It was this like thing that really became part of, for 10 years, we were part of the local culture of Suzhou.
2: You know, speaking of that, it, it, it just struck me now that lots of somewhat big brands nowadays are called Mr. Something. Maybe that's a tribute to you guys.
1: It might be. I don't know. It started in 1956. So yeah, it could be a Mr. Softee spinoff. I I don't know if they take 100% credit, but you never know. Uh, Mr. Donut, isn't that... That's like a Philippines thing. But uh, yeah. And so then... And then that plus the... we What we didn't really think about when we first started, but became a big part of our business was corporate stuff. We would go... I remember Bosch, that company, Bosch, the German company... At one point, we gave out, I think, 3000 They would hire us. All these companies would hire us just to give give ice cream to their employees for the day. Like, just come and then, then, then give them a bill. Give the company a bill at the end of the day. And however much people want... Like, free ice cream to everybody and how much they wanted, they would uh, pay for it. And I remember at Bosch, I was there for this one event one day and... I really started to worry because I was like, this company's not going to believe how much we're giving away. And they were cool with it. Bosch is totally cool. I remember we gave out 3,000 ice cream cones, I think, in two hours. Jesus. Yeah. We had two trucks and it was just nonstop. So, so we did that. We got the schools. We would go to all, like when the schools would have fun runs or whatever, we would go and we would donate and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, we really got into the culture.
0: So we have this uh, this dramatic growth. You guys raise some money, expand to bring some more trucks in, uh, bring some new drivers in, but the pains of growth begin to creep into Mr. Softie's, uh joints and, and bones, so it seems.
1: Yes. Well, it's funny you mentioned franchising earlier because we dipped our toe in that a little bit. There were two people who were good and then two or three that it was just a disaster. And the disaster part was way more frustrating. I ended up spending so much of my time just trying to make sure our franchisees weren't ripping us off. It, it was, it was difficult. Uh, can I ask you a, a, a question? Like what's, I, I know we're, ta- we're, we're detouring here, but what's, what have you seen that's successful and how do they, how do they do it? What's like the, in, in a, I know that's a long question, but if there's like a, any tricks that we never learned <laughs> on franchising,
2: Right. So people really go for franchising for two things. One, they want to expand faster, but they don't have the, they don't have enough people to really do it themselves. Um, two, they, they're going for the franchising fees. So, so it, it sounds like you guys were going for, you know, the first, which is to really grow faster. And, and that's really hard if you're just managing people. It's easier today because WeChat has become such an infrastructure in China, and um, you also have apps like Alipay, which really allow you to naturally avoid people paying with cash because cash is the hardest thing to track. Yeah. And now if you're paying, you know on your phone, either with Alipay or WeChat Pay, you go through a centralized system and basically if all the money go back to the company first and then you share whatever the proceeds or the profits with your franchisees, that's a, that's the easiest way to do it. Um, But before we have all the new infrastructure now, the way to do it is really to, to manage the people and you have to make sure you're recruiting people you can count on. And that's, that's really hard.
1: Yeah. Well, we, we had... Um, the way we did it, just if, if we can get into that for a minute, was we, we knew we couldn't regulate their sales. And so we decided to become the supplier for the product. And that worked with some people, but ultimately, it didn't work overall because um, they were just finding out other places to get the product or get like different versions of our product.
0: Could you talk a little bit about the um the ways you tried to control this and the uh fun and creative schemes that these uh, franchisees found to get around your your controls?
1: Yeah, well, uh, so franchisees and I mean our employees might even be more interesting. They were a little more creative. They I guess if that's the word. Let's see. So the first thing we noticed cuz you control your uh margins, the way the best way to regulate the business is to control your profit margin. So if it's like Say, for example, this wasn't our numbers. Let's use different numbers. Say 50% is what you want to make or 55% is what you want to make on each sale. Uh, so 55%, if the a, if a thing costs $1, then $0.55 cents should be profit and 45 goes to cost. And then you regulate that number. And if that number dips, instead of you getting $0.55, cents, you're getting $0.50. Cents then you know there's some waste going on somewhere like if it dips a little bit more or even at that number you start to investigate where this waste might be coming from and so that happened with us and we found that the waste was coming from from stealing and well stealings i don't know if it's the word well i guess so what we were do- what we always did from day 1 was we regulated leakage leakage sure so what we what we regulated from day 1 was that that number that profit margin and then Every morning, we would count all of the inventory going out. We had a manager who would count all of the... So say you have 100 ice cream cones on your truck in the morning. And then during the day, you sell 60 ice cream cones. When you get back at night, you should have 40. So we had someone who counted the, uh, the number at the morning and someone who counted the number at night. And then as long as that checked out, everyone goes home, you're fine. And so what we had gotten, I think, tipped off by someone that people were buying their own cones at these drivers. And then they, so that they could come back with the right number, they would sell a bunch of their own cones during the day. And so then they would still come back with the right number. Do you follow what I'm saying? Sure. Okay. And so um, what we started to do was I was like, okay, well I'm going to go out in the middle of the day. So we'll count the cones in the morning, a hundred and they'll go out in the middle of the day and see how many trucks, see how many cones are on the truck. So I pop up at one in the afternoon and instead of a hundred cones on the truck, there'd be like 130 cones on the truck. (laughs) And so that's an issue because the number should be less. It shouldn't be more. And so then we put GPS on the trucks and we found that they had a couple of the guys had this where we tracked their movement. And instead of going straight to their spot, they were going to this weird location when they would leave our office and then they would go to their spot. And where they were going was to this warehouse to pick up all this extra product they had. And so, and and initially it was just cones because they bought their own cones, but then they sold our ice cream, our toppings, all all of our stuff in the cone. And then they would keep, keep the money. Uh, So then when we can out, when we cut out the cones, once we figured that out, we fired a bunch of people and then we solved the cone issue then they started buying their own ice cream mix. And again, this is a big problem because it wasn't necessarily... I think it was the same brands that we were buying, but they had found it from some third party somehow. But... Oh, yeah. So they were buying somehow from some third party. And then... it. Sorry. It was the same brand. I'm, I'm just remembering. So it was the same brand. And so then they they had learned not to have more on the truck than they had started with. So they would kind of as they would sell a bunch in the morning and then someone would bring and they knew they couldn't go back to their warehouse. So they would have someone bring them Jesus. Uh to have someone bring them ice cream mix. Uh, and so then it would always be less and they wouldn't go to that warehouse. So we worked with our ice cream mix supplier where our ice cream mix supplier, they put a little stamp like a little note on all of our ice cream mix boxes that they sent to us, but not that they sent to anyone else or not that they sold online or that they sold anywhere. And so then we could tell if it was from our supplier or not from our supplier. And we never told our employees that. And I don't think they ever
0: knew because then we caught a bunch of people that way. Do you have a sense of what percentage of their salary they were able to supplement by doing these sorts of schemes? It was a lot. Yeah, because I know at one point, our profit margin when we
1: first started doing when we like the first wave when we first caught the um, the guys with the cones on a few of these trucks where they were doing that our margins went up by 10%. So that means that they were making 10% of sales. So if a truck on a weekend a truck could sell 10,000 RMB I mean man I'm, I'm trying to remember correctly but uh yeah, like a normal weekend, a truck could do ten thousand RMB in a day. Am I off on that, man? I don't know if I'm off on that because it's been a while since I've done the business. But if, for example, they could say average ten thousand RMB, so then that driver would make a thousand that they would put into their pocket that day. And what was their salary? Salaries, I think, were like five thousand a month, sure. something like that, for a full for 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 a full time job. Full time job, yeah. And a lot of these guys were previously long distance truck drivers. And so we were paying them a little more than what they would make doing that job. And they wouldn't have to be on the road all the time. They, they could stay at home. And that seemed to be pretty attractive. And then also I think being able to make a thousand and when the boss didn't know was also probably pretty attractive.
0: <laughs> Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. So interestingly, uh, some of these drivers, once you catch them, uh, didn't necessarily go back to long distance truck driving, but but started up on their own. Oh, yeah. Well, one of them. So then you mentioned the slash tires. One day we fired these two
1: brothers and then the next day I went home and I didn't even know that I didn't think anyone knew where I lived. But I went home the next day and uh, went to bed. And when I woke up the next morning, all the tires on my car were slashed inside my apartment complex. So they got pretty upset and then one guy came in one day and threatened to kill everyone in the office but i was gone so he didn't it was like there was only there was only like three or four people at that, that time in the office it was all uh, they were all women and they he threatened to kill everyone and then somehow he left and then they called the police and the police said we can't do anything until he actually kills you so oh, it was wild it was nuts and so, but they did. So then they told us to put bars on the windows, which was also good because it's not like it came in through the window. But <laughs> but we did put that. We did put a security system in at that point and all that kind of stuff. So then, yeah, they they opened up these other trucks.
0: Know. So so then you start to run into a number of government relations problems alongside of these uh, employee management issues.
1: Yes. So then, uh, so basically, as you said, all these a lot of these people we had
0: had to fire for stealing from us. They would pop up a couple weeks later with a truck. So alongside these employee management issues, you also run into a number of government relations problems, it seems.
1: Yes. Um so just to final to, to end the employee employee thing, so a lot of these guys when they would steal from us and then we would fire them, uh, they would also they would open a truck a couple weeks later that kinda of looked like a bootleg version of our truck is the best way to say it. So it wouldn't be it would be the cheapest version of the ice cr- of, a, of an ice cream machine and cheaper not our same products but like a cheaper product that they could sell kind of like a less expensive version of everything and and like a used truck and then But it would sort of look like our truck, and it would have a slightly different... It would have a different name, but in our font, whatever. I have a bunch of pictures of these. And they would park right next to our trucks. And when I first saw that, I just thought, oh, that's fine. Let's just call the government and tell them... Or the the Chenguan, which is like the street regulation police. I don't know the exact term. City Management Bureau, I think they call themselves. And uh, we'll call them, and they'll get rid of those people because they don't have a permit. We did have a permit, and they didn't have a permit. So it seemed pretty simple. Uh, But then they didn't, these people didn't go away and they weren't being, the local government was not enforcing it, not regulating them, not asking them to move. And so then it was affecting our business just in the sense that if someone's doing your exact same business, and when I say right next to us, I mean within inches. They would, almost to antagonize us, they would park within six inches of our truck. And uh, if we had a line of 10 people regularly, then you're going to get a percentage of those people are going to go to the other truck when the line's too long, whatever. So it just, it does cut your business down. And also selling the exact same products named the same. So they would even use, just copy and paste our menu. And so we had a softy blast, which is like a blizzard. And on their truck, they had a softy blast. It was called the same thing. And uh, so we called the, anyway, we called the government. We asked them to just regulate and they weren't, they wouldn't do anything. Uh, And they kind of disappeared. Like they wouldn't really, they would answer our phone call and be like, okay, well I'll get back to you. And then just wouldn't get back to you. And you wouldn't be able to get in touch with them for a few months. And the same thing through email. They wouldn't get, they wouldn't get
2: back. Like, do you think them ghosting on you is related to that one episode when, when they called you in to say you need to bribe them more and you walked away?
1: Oh yeah. So we didn't talk about that. That did happen Uh, a couple years earlier. The tax bureau had asked me to bribe them. Uh, I feel comfortable saying that because that's exactly what happened. And I didn't do it. I didn't give them any money. And then that was kind of the end of it. It was right, they said if you don't bribe us, we'll audit you. And as a foreign invested company, you get audited every year anyway. And we were a, a completely above board that we weren't doing anything wrong, so I was like, "Go ahead, audit me." Like I just had this like dumb confidence. And we we passed the audit. Everything was fine, but That taxpayer wasn't happy, but to answer your question, no, I don't, I don't think that they were directly related because they were totally, they were in different parts of town. They were different bureaus. I don't think they worked together, but I, I guess I could say that I think that the tax bureau people's thing was that if we paid them money directly, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't check our taxes. And then therefore we could not pay as much tax. So I think they were just two separate issues. Um, cause if you don't have to pay tax anymore, you you can make a lot more money, yeah. You know, obvious, as we all know, uh,
2: right. But uh, that, that's pretty crazy. You're paying the full taxes.
1: It's crazy that we paid it.
2: Yeah. Cause it's a 17% tax. Yeah. And you paid all that.
1: We paid a hundred percent of our taxes. Yeah. Because I had, and it was a cash business. So you're right. We didn't necessarily have to, but I was just paranoid the whole time that, that, um, we were a foreign business and we also were getting audited every year, which is true. And that we were going to, if we did anything incorrectly, like I didn't want to give the local government any excuse to kick us out. So oh, wow! I just, and,
2: and you paid insurance for all your workers.
1: Yes. Yeah. We, everything we paid insurance for everybody we paid. Um, and in Sujo there was this, I think in 2008, there after the financial crisis in the world, they had built way too many apartments in Suzhou, and not enough people were living in them. so they came up with this new tax, i guess or this um where twenty percent of an employee's uh salary every month went into a fund that could only be used to buy an apartment in suzhou and then on top of that, we had to pay an extra twenty percent of their salary that also went into that fund, so we're paying your salary all of a sudden is. 120% of what it or 20% above what it was previously, like overnight, we paid everything. We did everything a hundred percent by the book the entire time.
0: Model CEO over
1: here. Yeah. Except not I mean, good guys. Always, always. Ex- lose. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm not exactly a model CEO if uh, we went out of business, but <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm going to say that after seeing so many consumer companies, it, it's pretty, it's very hard to stay in business if you're paying, all the five types of insurances that the government wants you to pay on top of that 17% tax rate, Yeah, which is a huge amount, comparatively speaking. And, and in some cases, you have an additional 6% tax on that. So if you're paying all of that and you're still in business, like that's, that's an industry that's obviously going to be reformed somehow because the margin is too high. So basically, you can't win in this situation.
1: How is that? How can you not win?
2: So if you're still making a profit after after the tax, after the insurances, so basically your labor costs and your tax are already pretty high yes. and you still have yeah. margins left, that means you don't have enough competition in the industry ah. and that means ah. this industry is too outdated.
0: So someone's going to end up starting to cheat on their on their taxes and insurance and, and, and undercut you is the idea?
2: Well, usually that happens and, and oftentimes startups – And and this is the part that's really hard for foreign business um, to take advantage of. So basically, there's a thing called a small taxpayer type that allows you to pay only 3%. Basically, you save you know, up to 14% of tax. Yeah. And And that could be pure profit.
1: And that's what all of our franchisees were allowed to do that. So they could all pay the 3%. Um, And truthfully, a lot of them, I don't don't even, I don't even know if they paid that, but um, they were supposed to, right. Uh, And that wasn't really up to us, but they, so they were all that small taxpayer and we didn't, I think we were maybe like our first year. And then we, once we priced out of that, it became a big issue. And we, I don't know, we, we couldn't figure out what to do about that, but, what, so what's the what do most companies do then if they if they're not paying the taxes like we paid?
2: They do exactly what you did. They they franchise, they franchise the independent stores out to the franchisees or the truck drivers, or in some cases they they franchise their stores to their own employees. So the tax burden's on the individual, not the company.
1: And then the company's job is now they're just a full time franchisor. They just regulate franchises.
2: They could be a brand management company or they could be a supply chain company yeah. um
0: gotcha sort of like what we did with the supply chain right yeah this is all contingent of course upon uh franchisees who will not uh your tires and steal ice cream cones well to be fair those people
1: were not franchisees those were our employees oh. so anyway so then these guys also weren't getting regulated locally by the local government and then they, they also they didn't have all the licenses they didn't have hygiene licenses we figured out they didn't have a hygiene license they didn't have obviously a mobile this mobile vending license that we had been given they didn't have but they weren't being regulated which was pretty frustrating and it started out as one and then when nothing happened to them it, all of our drivers kind of ended up with their own trucks and then it sort of became chaos and after some time of us continually calling the local government. All we were asking them to do was enforce their own regulations. So we were saying, we have this permit. These other guys don't have the permit. Just enforce that. Just take them off the street unless they get a permit. And then if they get a permit, like there's nothing we can do about that. But if they don't, just enforce your own law. And the SIP government got so sick of us asking them to enforce their own law with a permit that they came to a decision and their decision was just to take away our permit. So we couldn't complain anymore. <laughs> Jesus.
2: That's terrible. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you. It's fine. It's been, I've, I've, I've moved past it, but uh, it's well, I, I take away is maybe not the right word, but they didn't renew. So we, we had one year permits that were basically if we didn't run over kids and all that kind of stuff, they would renew every year. And for the longest time, it was really fine. And then once we started complaining for a while about these other trucks, they just decided not to renew it. But the worst part with that was they didn't tell us they weren't going to renew it. They just said, oh, uh, you don't have a permit for now, but hold on because this year we have a new system that's going to incorporate all these other trucks. And that was just a lie. They never had a new system. There was never a plan. They kind of just didn't want to tell us to go away. They didn't want to face us directly. And so instead, they just thought we would take the hint and that took a couple of years because I was waiting on this new system that they were never gonna do. And then finally, once we figured that out, we uh closed up shop and left. And but also it it wasn't also wasn't even that cut and dry because we were allowed to operate. They said, okay, you guys aren't gonna have permits for now because we're coming up with a new system, but also still park in all your same spots and we're not gonna the police aren't gonna be coming around giving you fines like parking tickets or anything. We're still gonna let you operate as normal. But We're letting all these other trucks operate as normal as well. And now you can't complain because you're all on the same playing field because none of you have permits. So that took a lot of our power away. And then after about a year of that and, or maybe more and waiting on these permits, they, then we started getting fined by the police and the police started giving us parking tickets for being in our spots. And when we would take it to the government Sometimes they would be like, "Okay, cool. Well, sorry, we'll get rid of that," and then it would go away. And then, but more and more, that wasn't happening. They would, they just wouldn't answer, or they would say, "Oh, uh, yeah, we don't know. We'll check on it," and they wouldn't check on anything. And then it was like, "All right, well, now we're just getting like we're not a business anymore. You know, this is just
0: something illegal that, like, we're getting fined every day. So that's what we decided to close." So, Athena, how do other companies try to handle these sorts of government relations issues?
2: So, so basically, two ways um, businesses deal with this. One um, one way is to hire someone in-house to take care of all the government relations problems that you could possibly face. And you really want to take care of these relationships from the get-go because you want to let the fire department know. You want to let the, the FDA... so. The department that hands out the, the hygiene um, certificates, and you want to let the environment, the environmental department know as soon as you settle down into a store or you have a truck. You want them, you want to know that you will comply to their laws and regulations. And basically, this in house person um, is not doing anything rocket science, he's just there to, you know hand the government person a cigarette when that person feels like, you know, some extra attention, um, or takes that person out to dinner once in a while, gives that person a gift, you know, before the big holidays. It's really the, the, the little things because in China, there's a saying, um, That that basically goes like the lower in the government ranking you're in, the bigger ego you tend to have. Um, So these are government people who don't have a whole lot of power, but they really want to feel respected um, by, I guess, the constituents in their district or or the businesses. Um, So that's one way. The other way is... You know, since so many businesses run into this problem, there are now third-party vendors who promise to take care of these businesses for you. And those people tend to have some relationships with um, certain government de- departments, uh, maybe the relatives of a certain department head or, um, you know, an old boss of someone's in, in, in the government de- department um so that's generally the two ways
1: that would have been amazing if that was available at the time like a third-party company because the 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 definitely like definite uh, excuse me definite cultural uh i guess divide there but um i remember being aware of all like what you're saying being aware of that at the time and not knowing how to fix it. So we did, there was a guy, it, there was a guy like in a different district of Sujo. We had one truck in this other district of Sujo and the, um, the government guy that I kind of had to work with down there was this dude. I be, I became friends with, and we would hang out every once in a while. I remember we go, he loved to golf. Like we go golfing sometimes and um, we go get dinner sometimes. And, but he was like a, he was maybe like 40 years old and he traveled and was just like, we had stuff in common, you know? And so, right. and so I was happy to like hang out with him and kind of do what you said. Like it wasn't, uh, it was just like, get to just, we just knew each other. And then that is, that's everything worked fine down there. And then just the people I, I would go meet with people in the Suzhou industrial park. And it just happened to be the people I was meeting with. I just had nothing in common with. And I'm like, I want to take you out to dinner. And they, or even if I was to go out to dinner with them, it was like comical. I think we went out like one time. I'm like, what do we even talk about? What are we doing here? We have nothing. So was it just that they just didn't like your ice cream? Yeah, That was probably... No, they loved the ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> just, they liked it too much. They wanted their own. But, uh, but you're right. So if there would have been someone I could have hired... I remember talking to a friend who owned a bigger business in Shanghai And he was like, oh, yeah, I just have this like old guy on staff. He's like a retired government dude. He's like 70, and he's literally on my staff, but he never comes to work. And it's just whenever I need meetings like this done, he does it. And uh, that would have been great. I would have loved someone like that. I just didn't know where to – like, what do I do? Just like go find – excuse me, like old guy. Hey, do you want to come?
0: Do you know – like, do you know anybody? (laughs) You should have just asked every single um, uh, elderly man who showed up uh, to buy ice cream, being like, "So, like, need a season. exactly? Me right? Yeah." yeah. <laughs> but
1: you're a hundred percent right, and this was a mistake on my end. This was a part of the culture that going in as a twenty two year old, twenty four year old, whatever I was, who wants to start a business, you don't even consider that aspect of it, and I definitely should have. Um And if I once I kind of knew about all that, I felt like it was almost too late and I didn't know how to fix it.
2: So this government relations thing, it is a real job. It, it's not like you see someone you like today and you happen to be friends and and that part of the, the business is taken care of. Um, these are and they don't have to be, you know, government veterans. If you find one, well, lucky you, um, that's going to take care of a whole lot of businesses for you. But if you don't find one, there are actually people who are maybe our age, or maybe, you know, 30-some, 40-some, don't have to be too old. But basically, if they've been doing this for a while in the local district, they know who they're talking to in the local government. And and these tend to be very down-to-earth people who, they're kind of like salespeople. They just kind of, you know, make people like them. And And it's not like they have to be best friends with the local government. They just have to be very humble and make the local government feel like they're somebody.
1: It's so funny. It's almost like you're describing a lobbyist, like in the U.S.
2: You know, that might be exactly that, but but not as sophisticated as, you know, you're not pitching like a policy change. You're pitching for them to... Just take it easy. Give you a, on give you. You a break, everyone. Yeah, just once
1: not in a while. screw you.
2: <laughs> exactly. Not not to screw you. That's 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 a demand, yeah. basically. Yeah. You're not even asking for them to break the law for you.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that and that's what we were. We weren't asking them to break the law. It's just like, just enforce
0: the law you have. So now, Turner, you are a uh comedian touring uh touring across America. I'm curious. You know, has this the rise and fall of the of the ice cream empire given you a broader perspective on life? Did it bring out your tragic comic side? How long a bit can you pull out of this experience?
1: Uh, I do talk about it on stage. I do, it's not all I talk about on stage, but I do talk about it. It's um, I I probably need. I'm I'm gonna start talking about it more. I it's almost like you need a little bit of distance to talk about it, but there are. I have about ten minutes of so. I I I when I headline, I do like an hour, and I would say ten minutes or so is on the Mister Softy stuff, and there might be more in the future. But then I also talk about transitioning back to the U.S. Being someone that's gone from your own country for twelve years, and then all of a sudden you're back, and like everything's different. That's a big part of my life now. Uh, and also, when I came back, I came back at this crazy time, right before the 2016 election. America is insane right now. So that relates it's, there's a fine line of what people are interested in that doesn't relate to them at all. And that seems to be right now about 10 minutes of stuff. And then you want to, people want to at least feel like they're part, people want to hear about you in a comedy setting, but also they kind of want to hear about them a little bit. And, I did notice when I first came back, cause I'd been doing comedy for six years in China. That's the, the other half of my story is, uh, I opened this, I started a comedy scene and opened this comedy club with a friend. And so I had a comedic background for a long time. I was touring all over Asia as a stand-up. And then when I came back, you find that people want to hear about that for a little while. And then they're like, okay, but that can't be like, like tell us also relate to us on some level, you know? So, um, so I kind of mix it, I mix it in would be the best way to put it.
0: So we can't just let this uh, let this topic pop by without a one or two follow-up questions. So starting up a stand-up comedy scene in uh Sujo. So what was the what was the market like? How did you kind of educate people? Had anyone seen hour-long specials before or was it a was it, you know, is there a, was there like enough of a show uh, overlap that people sort of got what 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 you were doing? How did you how did you kind of kickstart it there? Um well,
1: the fun thing about starting that was that there was no strategy, no it wasn't a business, it wasn't it wasn't anything. It was just my friends and I wanted to try stand-up comedy and our friend opened another friend opened a bar and so we're like let's put on a night and see what happens. And all of our friends came down and it was so to answer your question it was mostly expats who had some familiarity and also Chinese people who had lived I don't know, somehow seen stand up comedy and spoke English uh, because it was in English. And this was like 2009 and uh, the end of 2009. And but at no point was it ever a business. There was no like big strategy behind it or meetings or anything like that. It was literally just people getting together and having fun. And it slowly, gradually, very gradually over the course of a number of years turned into something that became the Kung Fu Comedy Club in Shanghai and a tour that I ended up running and performing on um that lasted for years uh let's see 2012 to like 2000 i mean it just stopped a couple a few months ago um where we would go around to different cities around China with headliners from the United States or the United Kingdom or whatever and uh we would open for them and they would they would headline And we would do all these, we set up all these kind of shows in, uh, let's see, Chengdu, Beijing, Suzhou, Shanghai, Wuxi, Nanjing, Hangzhou, Ningbo. Uh, That might be it, but we were all over the place. And so it was always more of a hobby than anything else. And it really didn't become, even when I was touring around Asia, I would go tour and do all these different countries and I'd be gone for like four or five days. Or less even, because then I would come back and I was Mr. Softy. I was running Mr. Softy. So it didn't become like a full time, what I do full time. It kind of until it had to be out of necessity. And that was when uh, January of 2016, we closed, officially closed Mr. Softy. And then I was like, all right, well, this is what I do for a living now. So I better figure out how to make a living out of it. And um, that's part of, that's a big, that's actually is why I moved to New York later in 2016. And then I've just been doing stand-up every night in New York City since then, and then going on the road and making my money that way, uh, making a living as a stand-up comedian on the road and with my podcast and all that kind of stuff. So it was fun in the sense that there was, never, there was never a meeting about strategy or anything. It was just so different from what I was doing as my day job, you know, my, my main job, Mr. Safdie. Sure.
0: Um, yeah, no, it's interesting watching the 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 scene and the um, the kind of familiarity familiarity with it really develop over the past few years. I mean, like It and Yoku now have giant reality shows like America's, you know, ch- excuse me, China's uh, China's <laughs> new favorite stand up comedy, crazy and, and and whatnot. So definitely not something that was around, uh, you know, circa two thousand nine. No, uh, for sure. What's crazy?
1: Yeah, we were the first. So when we started that show that was the first show first stand standup show in China. I I mean, maybe there had been something a long time ago that we didn't know about, but at that time there was no other standup in China. And then Beijing came, uh, Shanghai came about a year and a half after us. And then Beijing came shortly after them and then uh, down in Shenzhen. And then it just kind of Chinese and English, it just kind of exploded. And it's nuts because there was people, it moves so fast in China, as we all know, like, there would be people that I would see at these Chinese language open mics at our comedy club in Shanghai. I saw them like two years, two or three years ago. And then my wife and I went back for Chinese New Year and just this past year, and they were on like we turn on TV and they're on this like major TV show doing a roast of somebody. And I was like, holy crap, like that's the kid. That's the kid who started open mic two years ago, like two years. It's crazy how quick it goes. And they're all famous now. It's really cool.
0: Good for them. You just got it. You just got to ride the right wave. Right? Totally.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's, it's awesome. And they got in before anyone else did. And they had this creative gene in them to try out this new crazy form of um, art, I guess. So it's very cool.
0: Turner, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. Great to meet both of you.
1: Really interesting conversation.